Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our great God, we thank you that you have spoken at many times and in many ways through the prophets, and we thank you that you have now spoken climactically to us by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Scriptures and your Holy Spirit who illuminates the Scriptures so that we might understand and believe them. And so we pray that you would enlighten our minds to receive your word tonight, that we might believe your testimony concerning your beloved Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to our sermon text. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 13. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 1023. First John chapter 5, 6 through 13. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This evening, as we are nearing the end of 1 John, We come to the middle of chapter 5, and it's an appropriate time to look back to the opening of the letter, as John is following here his common pattern of circling back to key themes that he's touched on earlier. And as I read here in a moment the opening verses again, note the shared emphases with our passage tonight. John's apostolic eyewitness testimony to Jesus Christ, followed by his purpose for writing. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In our passage tonight, John returns to these very same themes of testimony and his purpose for writing. The concept of testimony, of calling witnesses, should bring to your mind the setting of a courtroom. Witnesses are called to establish the facts of the case, and the agreement of multiple witnesses gives greater assurance of exactly what is true. Now, since salvation, as the Bible teaches us, requires faith, and faith requires knowing who you believe and what you believe, 
testimony is given to establish the facts, the truth of the gospel itself. At the beginning of the letter, John put himself in the witness box to testify what he had personally seen and touched concerning Jesus Christ with the purpose that we might share fellowship with the triune God and with one another. Notice also that he uses throughout those first verses the first person plural. We, we have heard, we have seen, we testify. John is not alone in his testimony, but he testifies along with all the apostles of Jesus Christ. His eyewitness apostolic testimony is authoritative. It is unquestionably true, and as he writes, he is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And now as he concludes his letter, he brings in the big guns. He calls his primary witness. God himself comes to the witness stand to give his threefold testimony concerning his son. Again, John states his purpose for writing here. Verse 13, so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. John's purpose is to give you assurance of your salvation. Perhaps assurance is something you've struggled with. Perhaps you've wrestled with doubts. And you have wondered, how can I know for sure that I am saved? This is a common struggle faced by many believers. And in fact, I can remember very well struggling with these same questions for some time in my early years as a believer. This is your struggle that John is writing to you tonight. And even if this is not your struggle right now, this is a message to strengthen your assurance to prepare you in the case that doubts come, and to give you the tools to minister to others who are searching for assurance. So we'll look at our text tonight under three headings. First, receive and believe the threefold testimony of God about Jesus Christ. Second, recognize the authority of God's testimony. And third, let God's testimony assure you of your salvation. So first, receive and believe the threefold testimony of God concerning Jesus Christ. Here, let me begin by reading verses 7 and 8 again. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. According to verse 9, these three are actually the testimony of God himself concerning his Son. John's purpose in writing is to give us infallible assurance concerning Jesus Christ, and our salvation in him, and yet we must also recognize that this is a difficult text to interpret. Let me read again verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. The reference here to the Spirit and his testimony, that's perfectly clear. But what exactly is John referring to when he speaks of Jesus as coming by water and blood? How are these two elements of water and blood actually God himself giving testimony to his son? The first difficulty with interpretation here is that both water and blood are extremely common symbols in the scriptures. And as common symbols, they can have a variety of of references. And so You can come up with a a large variety of possible interpretations. 
The second difficulty with interpretation is a lack of context. Here we should remember that in the original context, John is writing to a particular church that is facing a particular crisis with false teachers, antichrists, who had departed from that church, and yet they continued to teach, seeking to draw the people away after themselves. And if you read verse 6 closely, you'll notice that John is particularly highlighting that Jesus came not by water only, but by water and blood. It seems that these false teachers were teaching some sort of water-only Jesus. And John is responding to that here. From looking at the overall letter, we can conclude that these false teachers, these antichrists, they preached a false Christ. They had incorrect views of Jesus Christ, who he was, and what he had done. We know from earlier that they denied Jesus' bodily incarnation, that he was truly man. And this undermined the significance of Christ's death on the cross. And John's original audience would have understood clearly what he meant by water and blood. And since we don't know exactly what the false teachers were teaching and what John is responding to, we need to dig a little, a little deeper to see what he means by the water and the blood. But before we look at those two elements, we should first notice the emphasis that John says that Jesus came by water and blood. He came and this emphasizes Jesus' heavenly origin. John describes this coming in the first chapter of his gospel. You know the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. He also wrote earlier in this letter, chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Jesus is the one who has come from heavenly origins, the eternal Son of God who has taken on flesh in the incarnation. But let's now consider how that coming was by water and by blood. We'll begin with two common misinterpretations of this passage. And these are common. Uh, other people believe these, but I, I believe they're, they're missing the central point that John has here. One interpretation is that John is referring here to Jesus on the cross, as he records in John 19.34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. However, there are two problems with this interpretation. First, it doesn't line up with John's statement that Jesus came by water and blood. Instead, here we see water and blood coming out of Jesus. Second, it's also not clear how this is God's own testimony to his son. The second common interpretation is that John is referring to the sacraments, and you can understand the connections. The water of baptism, the wine of the Lord's Supper, which signifies the blood of Jesus Christ. These sacraments are witnesses from God that visibly proclaim the gospel to the church. But again, I, I believe this interpretation is also a stretch. The, the sacraments are, it's true, a continuing witness that point back to Jesus and the mission he came to accomplish. But I think it is far more likely that John is referring here to his actual coming, to actual events and testimony that took place during Jesus' 
earthly ministry. He is seeking to counter this false teaching that Jesus was not truly God incarnate in human flesh. So for that reason, I believe the best interpretation of these two witnesses is that they refer to Jesus' baptism, the water, and to his death on the cross, the blood. These two climactic events in Jesus' life, they bookend his ministry. They are both, they both teach his true humanity, both are crucial for his redemptive work, and both include God's own miraculous testimony to his son. So let's consider now the first witness, the water of Jesus' baptism. According to all four gospel accounts, Jesus' public ministry began with his baptism by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and Jesus had no personal sins to repent of. In his baptism, he identifies with sinful mankind in preparation for bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And as you recall, Jesus' baptism is accompanied by divine testimony. Both the visible descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus in the form of a dove and the audible voice from heaven as the Father declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In this we see Jesus revealed to the world at the very beginning of his ministry that he is the divine Son who has come from the Father, anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. This is the first divine testimony to Jesus Christ. Then we have the second witness, the blood of Jesus' cross. John particularly emphasizes this because his opponents seem to be teaching a water-only Jesus. Perhaps they were early proponents of a heresy that's now known as Serinthianism. This heresy teaches that Jesus Christ was simply an ordinary man on whom the Christ Spirit descended at his baptism, but this Christ Spirit later left him before the crucifixion. We don't know for sure if this is what they believed, and I won't explain tonight all the problems with this false teaching, but this would be an example of a water-only Jesus. This also denies the significance of the cross. And so Job's writes, John is opposing any teaching that demotes or eliminates the cross, a heresy symbolized by a water-only gospel. The full significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is upheld only by a water and blood gospel. John writes of the importance of Jesus' shed blood on the cross earlier in this letter, 1-7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But a Jesus who did not shed his blood is not a Jesus who can save. The significance of Jesus' blood is all throughout the New Testament. I hardly need to prove it to you tonight, but just a few examples, as we read, as our assurance of pardon, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Or consider from Hebrews, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, Hebrews 9, 12. As we sang earlier tonight, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And now we can ask, how was 
Christ shedding his blood on the cross, a divine testimony. God's testimony to his son at the cross and the immediate response is recorded for us in Matthew 27, 51 through 54. It says, immediately after John, uh, Jesus dies, and we read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. The miracles immediately following his death, we see God confirming his Son on the cross, and then we have the even greater miracle of his resurrection three days later. And as Peter preaches it on the day of Pentecost, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, Acts 2.24. And so we can see the divine testimony to Jesus Christ in his coming by water and his coming by blood. Then we have the third witness, the Spirit speaking in the apostles and the scriptures, verse 6b. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Here we have the divine testimony of the third person of the Trinity. How do we hear the Spirit speaking? First, we hear him speaking in the Spirit-inspired Old Testament scriptures. This is what Jesus was referring to in our scripture reading from John 5. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. You search the scriptures because you think that that, that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Of course, Jesus himself was full of the Holy Spirit, and everything he spoke during his time on earth was divinely inspired. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, John 3, 34. Then we have Jesus' promise nearing the end of his ministry to give the Spirit to his apostles, that they might be his authoritative witnesses. He says to them, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, John 15, 26. And then later, John 16, 12, and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so the Spirit speaks through the apostles and prophets in the New Testament scriptures as well. And when we consider all the words that the Spirit has given us, the entire Bible, the central theme of it all is God's testimony concerning his Son, so that in him you might receive eternal life. The Spirit has not only spoken in the past, he continues to speak through the scriptures every time they are read, every time they are proclaimed, God's word is living and active by the power of his spirit. And the spirit is the one who grants the new birth that we might believe and then continues to testify within believers that you truly are sons of God. John summarizes these three divine witnesses, verses 7 and 8. There are three that testify, 
the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. The biblical principle for establishing the truth since the time of Moses had been that two or three witnesses are required. If you'll recall Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, one of the problems, if you can call it a problem, was that they had trouble finding two reliable witnesses who would agree in their charges against Jesus. Of course, Jesus and Paul also affirmed this principle of two or three witnesses in their teaching, and John is also drawing on it here. A one divine witness should be sufficient, for God never lies. The fact that we have three divine witnesses all in agreement about Jesus Christ gives us even greater assurance of the truth of his gospel. And so John calls you to receive, to believe this threefold divine testimony about Jesus Christ. Second, he calls you to recognize the authority of God's testimony. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Every day, as you go about your normal lives, you receive the testimony of men about things all around you. And you watch the news, or you read a book, or even you simply hear a friend telling you about how his day has gone. You receive these things on the testimony of men. As long as the person is trustworthy, you believe his word. And if you doubt, you can always look for more witnesses, for more reliable witnesses to establish what is true. When it comes to reliable witnesses, there is none greater than God himself. For God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? <clears throat> Similarly, and perhaps even more simply, Hebrews six eighteen. It is impossible for God to lie. But now John confronts us in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If you accept God's testimony, wonderful. Praise the Lord. But if you spurn it, you are calling God a liar. Everyone who rejects the gospel, who rejects the divine testimony, is in fact taking God as a liar. And consider, just as you are offended, rightfully so, when someone disbelieves you, even though you are telling them the truth, how much more offensive is it to reject God's word and call him a liar? John Stratt writes in this vein, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. John is calling you here to recognize God's truth, recognize his authority, and to accept his testimony about his son. And our third point this evening, let God's testimony assure you of your salvation. 
verses 11 and 12, John gives us a brief summary of the content of this testimony. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 11 calls eternal life a gift from God. This clearly implies that on our own, human beings are in a state of death. The only way to have life is to receive it as a gift from God, and that only through receiving the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And verse 12 makes it clear there is no other way, no other path, no other religion, no other life, no other salvation except through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the question before each of you tonight is this. Life or death? Will you remain in a state of death? Or will you embrace the Son and receive the gift of eternal life? And John summarizes his purpose for writing in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And here's the purpose. That you may know that you have eternal life. This purpose applies not just to what John has written in just the previous few verses, but to the entire letter. This whole letter is given to assure you, believers in Jesus Christ, that you have eternal life. In fact, this is such an important topic, such an important verse that I've decided to split my treatment of it in two parts. Tonight I'll give just a a brief treatment connecting it to the previous verses, and then after we finish 1 John in our our, our next sermon, I'm going to come back to this verse and devote an entire sermon just to connecting it to all that John has written in the entire letter, a, a summary of the whole letter. So if you're looking at your outline, I'll just save those headings uh, under point three for that future sermon. Tonight, let's just connect verse 13 to what we've seen here in verses six and 12. The central theme in our passage tonight has been the testimony of God. John uses these Greek words for testimony and the, the verb to testify 10 times in just these few verses. And he reminds us of the complete trustworthiness of our witness. God himself is our witness. His purpose is to simply say, if you know and receive the testimony, and you know the trustworthy of the God who testifies, then, therefore, you will also know that you have eternal life. Putting it this simply may make, may seem to make assurance of salvation something that is very easy to attain. And I know that's not always the case. Many believers strong, struggle long and hard to gain assurance of their salvation. And there are many reasons for this. And we'll explore some of those in detail when we return to this topic in the future. We'll consider where doubts come from and how we can overcome them. We'll consider legitimate reasons for doubts. And we'll also consider the dangers of presumption. But for tonight, I think it's supremely helpful 
to see how John puts it in such a simple, such a straightforward way as he does in verses 12 and 13. Just hear these verses again. It's so simple. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, have, may know that you have eternal life. You see John pointing us here away from ourselves. Assurance is not found in ourselves. It is found by looking to God, by receiving what he has said, and by casting yourself on Jesus Christ in faith. And so I ask you these simple questions. Do you know the testimony? Do you know what God has said concerning his son? If so, do you believe that God is true? That his testimony is faithful and true? Do you believe his testimony? Do you receive it? If you reject the divine testimony, if you reject the son, John is clear, you remain in death. But if you believe God's testimony, then then John says you have the son and you can know that you have eternal life. It really is that simple. Receive God's testimony. Receive his son, and you will know that you have eternal life. Shall we pray? Our great God, our heavenly Father, we thank you for the the clarity of your word, even as we wrestle with verse 6 and see some difficulties there. We also revel in the the, the clarity of your testimony concerning your son, that he is the eternal son of God who took on flesh, who became man, who was baptized in the river Jordan, who did miracles, who preached the gospel, and then went to the cross to bear our sins in our place. He gave his life that we might be forgiven. He shed his blood that we might be washed clean. And three days later, he rose again and has ascended in glory. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you for the clarity of your testimony. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would give us faith to believe it, faith to receive it, and the assurance that if we have done so, we have eternal life in him. Strengthen us. Give us that security that comes from you alone. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.